uh, which I think is quite uh, quite interesting. But yeah, um, Vic, if you're listening, um, if you, if you want to explain how the membership in the CIS uh, is influencing Moldova and how it has influenced Moldova over the years, uh, I for one would be very interested in learning uh, exactly the, you know the details of that and and what the okay yeah, there we go. Uh, Vic answered my call. I'm very glad when Vic answers my call because uh, I, I I love learning things about uh, Moldova which I know far too little about. Um, Vic. Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, yeah, I was listening about this and I was just double checking on, on this. Kind of my intuition on this topic is, uh, so again, Moldova is an agricultural, it was like largely like an agricultural country and um, the farmers are able to make a lot of noise in the local press, right? And um, especially in the northern part of the country, uh, and I think it might be even in the in the south, uh, for us, uh, Russia used to be like a big uh, market. So basically supplying, let's say, uh, fruit, uh, but as well uh, wine and things like this. And um, Russia has been using this in the past. So basically it has been making a show out of, you know, uh, claiming that uh, the wine of Moldova is junk and uh, destroying in mass, you know, the wine. And we're painting some, how do you call the fence? saying it's good only for that. So, so really a ridiculous show. Um, it might be correct that maybe some of the product quality is not like to a par yet at like European level, but it has changed dramatically since that time. Uh, still, have, having this in mind, we still have some commercial connection with uh, some of these uh, countries. Um, and for us, basically European Union and European integration was not yet in the pocket. So it's kind of, we're already a very weak, very quite poor country, uh, trying to dramatically like cut a connection, commercial connection to like uh, the countries from, uh, I know the name in in Romanian. How is it in uh, in uh, English again? I, CIS? Common, Commonwealth of Independent States, yeah, CIS. Yes, yeah, so basically it seemed a bit like unreasonable so you don't want to punish uh, like some farmers in moldova and things like this so again you look from the again it's a very poor country moldova so you don't want to make it even poorer just make a political statement um but i know so i even when i went home uh, uh two weeks ago i was discussing with some basically fruit farmers from the north of the country and again because of their reliance on the russian market basically they are very pro kind of pro russian in the, again north of the country and now because of a word they they were saying yeah they are losing a lot they weren't they were, they're not ex- able to export anything to russia and basically the, all the fruits are getting spoiled on the trees and things like this um so yeah i guess it's a it's, a, it's about economics uh, even though i guess the president would like to do it as fast as possible and now we've uh, getting more, uh, you know, a green light towards slightly more integration with European Union. We're going that direction. Maybe we're, we are going to be able to do something. But now I think we are just being a bit quiet since the contracts, you know, with Gazprom, we don't want to lose now, you know, the, the contract. We don't want to be like blackmailed. For, for a while, we're going to keep quiet, I guess. Uh, but this is sp- speculation from my side. Thank you, Vic. Uh, let's go with Papi and then with Spring. Puppy. Question for Vic. Uh, uh, how much do you think, uh, coming from uh, someone who has a very, very superficial understanding of uh, the Moldovian internal politics, but how much do you think that uh, the uh, potential Transnistria, Transnistria blackmail could work there? Like, uh, uh, yeah, you don't leave uh, that uh, community of independent states uh, or Commonwealth of independent states because we have, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, military guys uh, in uh, some uh, weird mafia state uh, that is uh, very close to your core interest. So if I understand correctly, basically you're saying that is there is there a possibility that we are not uh, leaving this uh, the Commonwealth uh, organization because of Transnistria, right? Uh, Correctly, yes. I don't, I have not heard this. I think essentially Transnistria, they are like by default, they they want like more good relations with Russia. We just want to do everything with Russia. So I guess they might have some some speeches like like this, 
but I haven't heard this like spe specifically being mentioned that yeah they insist of being like a part of uh, the Commonwealth. Uh, it's more that we are kind of we are protesting and it's sort of getting closer to Euro European Union. Uh, so yeah, I I, I just didn't hear from them like specifically. Maybe they mentioned something, but again they are just again they just want to use this rhetoric against the West. We don't want to go. We want to be like more with Russia and things like that. Thank you. Thank you, Vic. Spring. Spring. Okay, I think she uh, uh, had to uh, run off to do something for a minute. Uh, right, let's, um, Vic, I've got a question for you uh, with regards to, let's say, the, the agricultural products from Moldova. So, uh, as you know, Moldova is a very agricultural country. It produces a lot of soft fruits, right? Lots of grapes, lots of stone fruit, lots of things that spoil quite quickly. Um, has has Moldova had great, really, you know, really substantial problems accessing alternative markets? Uh, and have Moldovan producers had really substantial pro problems accessing alternative markets? And how much do you think they were successful when uh, Russia first imposed, you know, controls on Moldovan wine some years ago as well? Yeah, so I think overall the winemakers, it was kind of a shock for them. But overall, I think it's they were forced to get out of their comfort zone. And there have been like significant, like again, specifically for winemakers, there had been like significant uh, investments. And I think I've even uh, started to see some people from outside. I guess they moved into Moldova and they have some connections with the wine industry. And even now, I think in there is uh, the some competition in Brussels of uh, wine and like uh, Moldavian wine got the best red wine. So uh, they're, they're expanding. And I, again, I have as well someone, some relative, like a bit more distant, but he was from this industry and he's constantly all over the world uh, um, promoting. And apparently it, it's working. It can be better. Uh, from the fruits point of view, um, I think one of the difficult parts for Moldova is there were still like a lot of small players and uh, yeah, basically they have, they lack, let's say as well, like negotiation power, but as well, like they don't have like proper standardization. They cannot like, uh, yeah, they don't have, a, 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 well, good investment in this area as well. But I think there is, uh, there are some reforms happening now. I think there is some, maybe some guidance from, from outside as well. But uh, again, people, uh, at least the person uh, that I uh, that I spoke with, they had some uh, farms with, you know, cherries as well as apples. They are kind of skeptical, you know, of, uh, the costs are biting them ser seriously right now, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, they're they yeah they're not too happy about what's happening right now so and they are losing their production so things like that. it's it's quite tough to be honest but uh, i know that european union expanded their quotas allocated for moldova so moldova is is able to export slightly more of like agricultural pro products uh i think it's like an as an exception now um it, i don't think it's like a longer term thing so hopefully it can save some some farmers but I'm not sure, like, uh, I don't have an overall picture. Overall, I know that uh, uh, agricultural production, it's 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 quite stable. It, it went a bit slightly down last, uh, last year. I'm not sure right now with, uh, you know, the war as well with, like, it's quite uh, hot in Moldova. It's uh, hotter than average. And uh, again, uh, it, it might play a, a big role, I would say. Thank you, Rick. Um so the, these uh, Russian effective bans and, and restrictions on Moldovan agricultural products and wine, right, that, that all came into force following the signing of the Moldovan-EU Association Agreement. Um, that's 2013, 2014, 2015, something like that. Um, has that agreement made it easier for Moldovan farmers to explore markets further to the West? Or are there simply some standards which are a problem? Uh, if they're if they're not fulfilling them. I think it might be both standards but as well again I am not an expert in this area and just it's kind of what I think the the standards are a problem but there might be the quotas as well so my understanding is and I see Axel maybe he knows um, uh, so, so it might be a bit like European Union to be a bit more protective of, of the internal market so maybe they're not because I've, I've seen in the press 
someone for, from Bulgaria, for example, they're complaining about, you know, suddenly some Moldavian products are getting on their market and yeah, how come, you know, and uh, yeah, things like this. So some people from, from within European Union might not be too happy. Okay. Thank you. And just a reminder for everyone, in just uh, 15 minutes time, we, we will be joined by a representative of the International Legion in Ukraine, uh, aren't we, Axel? And at least uh, I'm very much looking forward yes. to this. Yes, we shall. I'm trying to swing back into calls in a minute. Excellent. Um, and so for anybody wondering why we're talking about uh, agriculture in Moldova, right? Um, I, I, I think this is a really you know, interesting thing to be talking about, actually, because there are so many parallels between Ukraine and Moldova, not, not just because they're neighboring countries, but because they were uh, facing the same sort of attempts by Russia, Moldova even well before Ukraine was, um, to you know, destabilize the countries and, uh, by occupying parts of the territory, in the case of Moldova Transnistria, in the case of Ukraine, Crimea, and parts of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. Uh, they were both uh, targets of similar uh, types of propaganda attacks by the Kremlin. Um, and they're now both, you know, they were both given European Union candidate status for accession to the European Union um, at, the, at the same time, right? So it, it's kind of, you know, two countries, very different in size, obviously, but both quite heavily agricultural, though very different kinds of agriculture, uh, commodity, you know, um, more stable commodities, usually in the case of Ukraine versus um, much more in the soft food sector, especially grapes for wine uh, in the case of Moldova. Um, you know, there, there's there's a lot of parallels between these two countries, and, and it's very interesting to watch the uh, let's say the parallel development uh, that they're going through. Vic. But it's another way how Russia was playing this. So it it tended to kind of um, give like more preferential terms, but only to some approved players. So for example, if you are from Gagauzia and if you're like supporting. Russia, you know, so you might get like uh, the rights to export stuff on Russian market. Or if you're friends with Dodon, you know, in Moldova, you also might get some preferential treatment. Or if you are, you know, again, so that's why it's it's a, yeah, it, it's very unfair, but this is how they were trying to, you know, force the hand or influence the opinions or to win players from the, from Moldova, which is, yeah, very dirty, but they were doing this. Vic, it's so nice that you just said this, Gagrizia. Because in German, we know the place very well, because uh, if you remember the, this um, mosaic-like map of people who lived in the region uh, for hundreds of years, we call them the Gargause, and it has a resounding um, yeah, attraction to people. Uh, yeah. Wonderful place, yep. by the way. To be honest, I haven't been there, but I, I want to go there. Uh, yeah, I need to, uh, yeah, I need to travel there. See, needs more travel to discover more culture. Oh my, um, Axel, I've I've been getting a whole lot of questions over the course of the day uh, about why we're not talking about the assassination of Japan's form, uh, former prime minister Shinzo Abe, and if this could have, you know, any any effect on uh, the war in Ukraine, or if it has any relate, if it bears any relation to the war in Ukraine. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, by any chance? I think it is only fair if a, a senior statesman like uh, Shinzo Abe has been um, has been assassinated. That we step back and let the Japanese authorities do what they have done best so far, meaning they have apprehended the assassin alive. They've started investigating. They've started questioning him. We'll have. Uh, I, I'm quite sure that the Japanese authorities are as meticulous as always. And we will have a full briefing on the matter at a later stage. And up until that time, one can only express condolences to his uh, surviving wife and uh, to our Japanese friends here at this time of what can only be described as a shock to the nation. And um, trust in the Japanese resilience and resolve to not be distracted from the evident challenges Japan has in international politics at this time. And it's especially trying, given the fact, of course, that Japan is a very active member in support of the global coalition of the willing. Thank you, Axel. I think that's uh, very well put and no, very, very well said. Uh, and, and I don't think we should uh, really, really comment on this further. I just broached the topic briefly because there, there was so much 
so many questions, so much interest in, in this regard. Um, Vic. So to be honest on this topic, I was having kind of flashbacks. Uh, I was listening uh, some time ago, a longer pod podcast on the topic of, uh, you know, of, of Japan in, and during the World War II or just before. Um, and uh, they had like a wave of assassination, you know, so some, but again, uh, apologies, stopping if it's like too off topic, but by, this event kind of brought me some flashbacks from those events, you know, those times. I hope it's nothing related to, to what happened then, but essentially it's, I think, more uh, extreme parts of uh, society or even the military uh, were kind of assassinating like more moderate or yeah parts of a government trying to push the government towards like more you know imperialistic uh, at least this was my feeling so uh, but again i'm gonna stop here thank you Vic. um swinging a bit ever so slightly further south um, Bulgaria today got uh, connected to a non-Russian natural gas grid for the very first time uh, because the interconnector with Greece and Turk Stream, I believe, has been uh, opened uh, and that will you know, additionally perhaps secure uh, Bulgaria's access to natural gas uh, in, in the winter, in the, in the upcoming winter uh, after Bulgaria was kicked off of the Russian uh, of, of Russian supplies a month or so ago because, well, they weren't doing as Russia said. But this might impact as well. It was mentioned by Ukraine, Ukraine Romania, Moldova as well, right? They are my, they're going to get uh, gas from this pipeline or not? Um, hopefully in due course. The thing is, um, the, the main pipeline that brings uh, gas from Azerbaijan through you know, Georgia, Turkey, etc., um, to Greece in the first place, that simply doesn't have that much capacity, right? And because it doesn't have that much capacity, well, it, you know, it, it's simply not wide enough, I guess, uh, the, the answer is, um, to be able to do a whole lot in this respect. Um, it, it's it's a right for a, you know, small-ish country such as Bulgaria, fine, but uh, I don't think it will uh, provide a whole lot of capacity, you know, spare capacity for uh, a number of other countries as well. Uh, where it might have more use is if more energy terminals get built out in Greece uh, on the Aegean, because then it, it will be easier to actually supply more uh, more gas into this, you know, Greece-Bulgarian interconnection than for the north. Mike Chair? Yeah, Puppy, we're, we're here, we're here. Um, just uh, wondering what else um, we should go, uh, what else we should go into in these short eight minutes that we have. Uh, before we're joined by a representative of the international region in Ukraine. Can Dalton's puppy give us a quick update as to what the Italians are talking about in terms of weapons deliveries? Because I understand that the uh, previous ambiguity and uh, veil has been lifted somewhat. I can ramble uh, aimlessly and endlessly about, uh, you know, Italian weapons delivery to Ukraine. The point is that... Uh, it uh, will never be clear because uh, Italy does not disclose the weapons that are being uh, delivered. Uh, there is an indirect uh, understanding of what is being uh, given by you know, the budget uh, that uh, is included in the larger, the larger Italian budget. And there is uh, another clue which is... Uh, just counting the numbers, so the uh, Ukraine Ministry of Defense uh, claims uh, that there are nine uh, HIMARS or equivalent, which I take to mean uh, M270 currently in the field. So I am not exactly sure what are the countries that are currently providing those, uh, because uh, that, to my understanding, has not been disclosed. Uh, there are rumors that Italy is going or is currently providing, probably still not on the field because it, it takes time for you know logistics and whatnot, uh, providing two or three M270. That, that is what uh, uh, the Italian press reports. So take it with a grain of salt. It's just the press reports. Um, it is, however, a press report from some of the major news outlets that are widely considered reliable uh, in uh, the you know, Italian landscape. 
that is uh, seems to be indeed uh, good news if this is the case uh, the reason why this is uh, not uh, um, officially acknowledged is uh, i presume uh, mostly internal politic uh, politics uh, reasons um, uh, as you may know the italian government is uh, backed by a national unity parliament uh, um, coalition that includes people like mr salvini who is uh, a putin backer and uh, probably a putin asset so uh, there is uh, there are good reasons why the mr draghi aka super mario does not really want to disclose the specifics of what is being delivered to ukraine uh, my best guess is that we will know if there are uh, actually m270 coming from italy actually in the field only when we see some videos of uh, m270 firing with some tiny italian flags possibly on the side that is uh, the current assessment i might add that uh, in the uh, political landscape uh, as related to ukraine at the moment uh, okay let's make it uh, uh, less boring than it actually is when you read the italian press the half of the italian largest party or movement has split off and uh, the reason why they split off is mainly because they did not want uh, the italian uh, government drag it to be allowed to send more weapons uh, to ukraine they might or might not uh, it is uh, being decided uh, in the next uh, probably 24 hours or so they might or might not leave the government uh, my hunch if i were to have one is uh, that they will not but uh, even if they do it is unlikely that the government uh, will fall uh, uh, and uh, for the sake of uh, what uh, the topic of this place is concerned, uh, I would say that uh, for the next uh, six months, at least, uh, Italy will have uh, a prime minister that is largely supportive of uh, sending more weapons to Ukraine, which is good news for, you know, the world at large, I would say. The empire has not changed the emperor. That's a good way to put it, man. Nina. Hello, Axel uh, and Dorman and everybody. Uh, I was listening to Bertrand, Papi, and uh, I didn't hear anything about this uh, turmoil, uh, as I understood, in going on in Italy. Uh, did I uh, get it correctly that uh, this would actually be a good thing uh, if they will change the... The good thing for Ukraine if, if this change will happen. Thank you. I can try to answer. So um, let me try to put this together as the two minutes version. So uh, the Italian parliament, as of now, has uh, probably, it is fair to say, a majority of parties uh, that are not necessarily supportive of uh, providing. Uh, military aid to ukraine depressing but uh, true true so however the majority of italian people according to the polls take the polls always with a grain of salt but the majority of the people according to the polls are supportive of that and the government, uh, the person uh, that uh, sometimes is uh, mentioned as Mr. Draghi, Super Mario, is also, by all appearances, supportive of uh, uh, bringing uh, more military aid to Ukraine. So, um, Italy is a little bit uh, in a gray zone, as always has Italy been since a few centuries, I'm afraid. Uh, but I would say that right now, Italy is uh, has a government, has a prime minister that is, uh, and also a foreign minister, to be fair, 
that is trying to push as much military aid as possible to Ukraine, one, and is also probably as importantly trying to uh, get rid of uh, the historical energy dependence uh, from uh, um, Russia. That is good news because with all the support Italy is now bringing in, including shells and ammunition, uh, people such as those who are fighting in the International Legion can actually benefit from it as well, so that they have enough guns and ammunition. And with that, we recognize uh, our guest, uh, a representative of the International Legion of Defense of Ukraine, ILDU. Good evening. Hi, um, this is Mockingjay. Uh, as it's out there in public, I'm the communications director for the International Legion. And I would like to thank you guys for offering us the opportunity to be in this space. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad to be here. And uh, I joined and I heard a bit about the previous discussion. And yes, we do need all these countries who have not really been stepping up their game and not have been providing as much as they probably could to to join the the countries that have been supporting ukraine and the war effort greatly so um i think we all opened on a very good topic absolutely you are very welcome maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how uh, the international uh, legion is um currently featuring uh, in the war efforts in coordination with the ukrainian armed forces and uh what the situation is inside. So um, the International Legion, as, uh, as most people probably know by now, um, is fully integrated in the armed forces of Ukraine. And uh, therefore, we are working within the army structure and uh, our operations are fully... So for operational purposes, the army all the control, so to speak. Um, we are working with the army, within the army, um, we are using Western weapons. We are using uh, NATO weapons when they are available. We are using uh, Western anti-tank missiles when available. And uh, the people who bring their own equipment and their own supplies when they join the Legion, that's all obviously Western supplies as well. And uh, as of right now, we are pretty much supplying the Legion when, when we procure our own supplies from Western countries. Absolutely. Um... And uh, we're well aware of that we have a on our panel we have also our colleague Battle Moose, uh, who has been with the Canadian Armed Forces, and uh, as you will be aware, Walter Report and Maria Aid are very closely aligned with those who have been actually supporting Ukraine up until the end of last year in the Operation Unifier, training um, the Ukrainian Armed Forces, specifically officers and NCOs. Um, for close to eight years in that regard. Colonel Melanie Lake, who co-founded um, the Rear Aid, has been the last commander of that effort. Battlemoose, welcome. Good evening. Good day, sir. Good day. And uh, I'd like to extend uh, a very warm welcome to our friends in the International Legion. Uh, I myself was not on Op Unifier. I, I, I retired long before that happened. But uh, <clears throat> again, thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, in in your in, in your uh, eyes, what do you see as immediate needs for uh, for the troops that you can speak within the realms of OPSEC? Um, ammo, more weapons, um, meaning um, NATO weapons, as in rifles, and heavy weapons. We need a lot more heavy weapons. That is a complete game changer. Um, Without having to disclose locations, everyone knows where the front lines are. And it's the same story everywhere. If, if we have heavy weapons and we have the support of artillery and even heavier weapons, or even if just the mechanized brigades and battalions are well supplied with, with, uh, with tanks and armored vehicles and ammunition for these, it's a complete game changer. Like there were news coming out that down south on the southern front and behind the southern front, Russians were abandoning their positions because HIMARS are down there and HIMARS can reach their positions and they are scared. They are, uh, uh, you know, they are abandoning their positions and they're leaving. And 
this proves that it's a complete game changer and we need more of that and we need ammunition and we need more air defense so immediate needs did not change and they are the same what the the president the the minister of defense uh, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces has been asking for from the first day of the war. Um, and it has not changed because even though we started to get those things, we still need more, a lot more, hundreds more, thousands more, and the continuous supply of... And- maybe maybe we'll circle back around. I, I kind of jumped into a, a topic we should have probably got into later. I... Uh, Possibly, possibly for, uh, and you can go on to the uh, the International Legion's website and actually find out what you are required to have to join the Legion. Uh, maybe for our listeners right now, can you go through the criteria? If I wanted to go down to the Legion and I went to the Ukrainian embassy, and after they told me, what are you going to do, take your leg brace and throw it at the Russians, uh, they laughed at me and I walked out. Uh, okay, so that's that's not very nice to begin with. Uh, so the criteria is combat experience, military training and experience is not enough. Uh, our upper age limit is 45. Um, in terms of equipment, this is not a must bring with you list. This is a recommended list. Uh, sleeping bag, uniform, uh, personal protective gear, um, plates, plate carrier, helmet, uh, ballistic glasses, gloves, and so on. Uh, two reasons for this. I'm not going to lie. Everything is in short supply in Ukraine and, and those serving on the ground now or have spent any time on the ground will understand what I'm talking about. But this is becoming a global problem. Uh, it's not just uh, Ukraine, even in Poland and, and surrounding countries, everything is running low. Um, <clears throat> so it's it's better if people bring their own if they don't that doesn't mean that they will run around and sit in foxholes without a helmet and uh, plates and plate carrier uh we can supply people and we do provide everything that they need however if people are used to their own equipment if they have um specific things that have been personalized or uh, you know they feel more comfortable with it they know it they have used it then it's recommended that they bring it. And once they get on ground, uh, they they walk up, uh, okay, me and Axel walk up to the Polish border. Uh, what are we to expect? So once someone applies through the embassy, they will uh, they will get instructions as to how to meet with our recruiters and they get taken to one of our uh, uh, recruitment centers and meet with recruiters on the ground and they make the final decision on whether someone is eligible to join the Legion or not. And if they are eligible to join the Legion, then uh, they will be taken to a location where all their documents are inspected once again and um, there is a background check and then uh, signing the contract being um, assigned to you. Beautiful. And uh, once we're uh, once we're in the unit, uh, what uh, uh, is, is there a requirement? Do I do I need to uh, be able to speak, read and write in Ukrainian? No. So English is compulsory for everyone because that's the primarily language that we communicate in within the Legion. Uh, speaking Ukrainian or, or, or knowing Ukrainian is not a requirement. Of course, it's an advantage, but it's absolutely not a requirement. Most of us don't speak. Can you tell us something about the structure of NCOs and officer class, given the fact that there's an integration into the uh, CSU? So um, how that is composed, I understand that most of the officers still are supposed to be Ukrainian nationals and Ukraine army. Um, yeah, this is true. Um, and this is due to the fact that uh, currently Ukrainian legislation does not allow for foreigners to be officers. Um, the highest rank is probably something like master sergeant, which is a non-commissioned officer rank. Um, and uh, due to this, the well, not all of the officer positions are uh, um, held by Ukrainians. However, most of them are. And uh, there are foreigners in decision-making positions, and there are um, platoon commanders, for example, are all foreigners, and two ICs for company commanders are foreigners. So it's not entirely that foreigners are not taking part in any of the decision-making or, or planning, or or they are not 
in the command structure. Do you see this changing? I mean, the legal uh, setup. I would like, I can't say for sure it will or it will not. Um, there is there is room for negotiation. That's as much as I can disclose right now. It did come up and we did see support for this. We did see pushback because even in the French Foreign Legion, unless you're a, for, a French citizen, you can't be an officer. The difference being that if you join the French Foreign Legion, they offer you citizenship right away, which in Ukraine is only after serving for three years. So, and our that, okay, these people come here to actively defend this country. So potentially they would deserve to be able to uh, get higher ranks and higher positions. Uh, there is support, there is some pushback as well. So hopefully we will be able to, to make some change happen. Um, right now there is room for negotiation and that's what we're doing. Yeah, and evidently this is an issue in order to attract, um, say, good, uh, say, medium rank leaders. You want captains, majors, planners and the likes, and you'll need them in order to sustain the fight. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and uh, we have support for the Legion to sort of be much more and much bigger than just a Legion and sort of introduce nato standards a bit more widely into the ukrainian armed forces there is there is support for that there is pushback as well of course and nato standards became sort of a sour subject because ukraine was told that the army is not up to nato standards and yet here we are holding back what was allegedly the second biggest and bestest and strongest army in the world um so this this become a bit of a became a bit of a sour subject but what I can say is they want good people and they they agree that foreigners need to make some of the decisions. There are some things that we're finding out as we go along that it has to be done by foreigners. And so the way we look at this from within the Legion is the Legion is a startup and we're learning as we do it. So, of course, there will be things that we didn't really expect and we didn't know how to handle or we didn't know we should be asking for, such as, okay, officer ranks. And now it's becoming very, very clear that we do need that because the Legion requires foreigners to, you know, organize it, to arrange it, to be in charge to some extent. This is not to say that Ukrainian command is not com competent, it's not good at their job, no. They know what they're doing, they are competent, they're doing their job, and they're working really hard. However, when you get foreigners into your army, you get very specific issues or, or very specific tasks or things that you need to deal with and how you deal with it. And that requires foreigners. And um, for, uh, NATO armies work slightly differently than Ukrainian armies, so it would also help operationally, uh, logistically, to have uh, foreigners in these positions. That is much appreciated. Um, Battlemoose and I would probably be very interested. What kind of MOS are you currently interested in when people are joining? What kind of backgrounds are most important or sought after? So currently we're, we're uh, recruiting for combat positions and this is why combat experience is required. Uh, so it's, it's rifleman positions, so to speak. But then Obviously, people's previous experience and background does come up during their interviews. And, and uh, of course, we have combat support and we have uh, headquarters and there are various support roles and support tasks. However, we don't advertise these specifically during interviews. And when someone gets, um, you know, to the Legion, these come out and they are discussed and then the relevant people are and the, the right people are selected for these roles and positions. Are you specifically recruiting for combat engineers and combat medics? Uh, we're not specifically recruiting for certain types of combat experienced people, but anyone who has combat experience can apply and then their skills will be put to use. I don't know if this, this answers your question. Basically, our recruitment is very, very generic. We recruit for combat positions and um, and then everyone's skills are put to good use within units and, and they are they are sent to where they are most needed or where their skills can be used. I think uh, Battlemoose, the, the question which we have is always, uh, do they have enough medics uh, in the respective platoons and troops? Um, well, 
it's a country at war. Uh, we can always use. No, we, we we know this. The, no, the question no, is: no, Does, so does the can, foreign legion have, have uh, use, specific we medics? Always, we can always use more medics. We can always use more riflemen. We can always use more people with specific skills. So you know, if you have medics on the ground, or if you have medics that are thinking about applying, then yes, please apply. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the general equipment in terms of uh, vehicles and the likes? The Uh, foreign legion has access to so we pretty much have access to the same things the ukrainian army gets because we have supplies from the ukrainian army um we are however uh fundraising to provide more for our troops to have the the cash flow or the the emergency funds to to buy things on a short notice or if an emergency arises and let's say a vehicle gets hit on the front and we should be able to replace it very, very quickly on a very short notice. Uh, there are different types of vehicles. There are the, the army specific various trucks and, and vehicles. Those are supplied by the army. And then there are smaller vehicles, uh, more for, you know, smaller scale logistics and, and more personal use that the army also supplies some people actually uh, some people actually buy their own cars here simply because they want to have their own vehicle it gives a bit more flexibility and freedom to people um, and then we as in the legion have purchased several vehicles just because cars come and go on the front like you can have 10 cars today and then tomorrow you have two and also with the roads sometimes the guys drive on vehicles have to be repaired quite often so That's all right. I, Thank I, you very much. I have a uh, question. So if I uh, join the Legion and I'm serving and if I'm injured or uh, killed in uh, in combat <clears throat> uh, prior to the three years of rolling over to uh, to a full full citizen of uh, of Ukraine, uh, what what becomes of me then? So we contact your next of kin. Uh, I have handled some of these cases myself. Uh, we contact next of kin. This information is collected when you sign a contract. And then we work with the families to arrange repatriation. It will be decided by them whether we transport the body home or there is cremation here in Ukraine and we just transport the urn home or there is, you know, uh, a burial here. Uh, and the armed forces of Ukraine pays for this. We also work with the embassies because there is some bureaucratic procedures that require the embassy's involvement. We handle all this as well. Um, and then uh, there is, uh, I can't remember the amount from the top of my head, but there is a there is a significant amount of money that the family is entitled. So basically it's the same treatment as Ukrainian soldiers receive. Um, And a bit more, actually, because the armed forces handles the entire process of, of uh, a fallen soldier being sent back to the family. That's that's fantastic uh, news. Uh, there's there's been a, a lot of gray area in the uh, in the Western media about that. So it, it's great that you cleared that up. And uh, you know, at the very least, if uh, Axel and I go over there, and if I fall, I would at least want to be buried with full military honors. Yeah, so this is this is absolutely how it's done. Um, we don't leave people behind just because someone is a foreigner and their families are not here. It doesn't mean that they they are forgotten about or or they are not being sent home or that the family needs to travel to Ukraine, a war torn country, and and sort it out themselves. Absolutely not. Just, just so you know, you you made you made the hairs on my arms stand up. So it's uh, that that's that's really good. That really touches uh, touches my soul. I mean, it's the least we can do in these situations, and we do try our best to to give the families uh, our best care in this case. I, I don't even know how to word this. Like, make sure that the process and the procedure is, is as smooth as possible. We do our best to put out public statements as soon as we can, just to sort of try and prevent the media frenzy that sometimes starts to be unleashed. And and um, we do try to to handle all aspects of this. It's unfortunately it is hard because in the in the age of social media, news sometimes break a lot faster than you want them to, and everyone has good intentions. Unfortunately, that's not how it always plays out. But um, 
the good thing is that the the army is absolutely helping us and supporting us and um, we have a great relationship with the general staff and they help us whenever we need any help and they came personally and gave us great advice and gave us a great amount of guidance um, and uh, I am working with them personally and uh, all I can say is that these people uh, are doing their absolute best to, to help us in these uh, very sad situations and uh, they understand the importance of, of making sure that these soldiers make it home to their families and they work really hard to make it happen and it's not easy. That's that's great. That's great news. Uh, unfortunately, it's a very macabre subject, but it's, uh, I think, something that was necessary to be touched on. Uh, when uh, when I show up on uh, on on the on the front, uh, what are the rotations like? Uh, how long do I uh, do I expect to be on the, on the front line, second line, third line, rotate out for R and R and and so forth? So I don't know exactly because this constantly changes and it depends entirely on the situation and it also depends on roles. So some people are at headquarters that is behind the front, of course. Some people are um, in support roles, so they are at CPs. So that is also behind the front. Some people are in, uh, ooh, apologies. Some people are uh, on the front and then they rotate out to CPs or headquarters, uh, say every week. Okay, uh, that's that's all the questions I have. I'll uh, turn it back over to uh, Domin and Axel. Thank you, Vettel Moose. Um, yeah, I had a question on the, uh, which came up also from the audience before. And that is, uh, what kind of recruitment targets do you have in terms of numbers per week, per month? Um, in all honesty, we don't really have target numbers. Uh, is we take it as it comes. Uh, there is always space for more people. Uh, we don't have numbers simply because if if we started to, to plan uh, very meticulously and we tried to, to plan... Uh, very systematically, it would probably mean that uh, he overcomplicate things a little bit. So in other words, it matters more that you get the right people as opposed to um, get as many people as possible, right? Exactly, exactly. So we could get 10,000 people who don't have the relevant experience versus get 100 people who are very experienced, very skilled, and we would prefer to get those 100 people. It's it's absolutely a quality over quantity uh, situation, one hundred percent. We don't disagree, but we also understand uh, from a pure warfare perspective that the numbers do match up. So that's why why the questions come up in that regard. And um, my DMs are flowing over from former officers and NCOs from different. Um, armies all of the same kind of questions i mean you have to have a grasp on the numbers as to what you're fielding because you have to be training those people you have to create unit cohesion and then bring them to the forefront um how does it look at the moment uh, how do you uh, what kind of timing would you assign uh, um to the creation of the relative i mean the newly formed squadrons and bring them forward so basically the, the way it happens right now is people come, people join, they sign their contracts, they are put in a unit and in two weeks they are sent to the front. Uh, and we do have the influx of people to make this happen. So I can't disclose numbers. Um, so this is kind of a hard subject to talk about without numbers. Uh, we don't really have numbers as targets for recruiting. What I can say is that we do have the numbers to like sort of form teams and send them to the front within two weeks of their arrival. And that is how it's done. We don't train people. And we're very, very clear about this. We do not have the facilities, the times and the resources to train people. Like training people is, is very resource heavy. Um, you have you equip these people, you house them, you feed them for weeks or months, and then and only then some of them will be combat ready. Um, Ukraine as a whole, as a Ukrainian army, is doing this on a very large scale. And there is no resources and no room for us to be doing this with foreigners as well. Maybe at a later stage, and if this happens, we will announce it, of course. 
However, right now we want to bring in a manpower that does not require training. What we do, of course, units train together. So this is an entirely different thing. And this is team cohesion. Um, all that that is happening. Of course, a team does need to that is what uh, I'm leading. Together. That is what I'm leading at. Yes. That is exactly yeah, so, what I'm leading at. So that does happen. That's a week or two. And it is sufficient. It is sufficient because these are all experienced people. They know what they are doing and they just get used to each other. And that happens very, very quickly when you live together, train together, eat together, do everything together. Right, Axel, shall we go to some hands and then we can return to our line of questioning? Let's, sure. uh, let's go to Spring and then to Puppy and then to Nina. And then I also have a bunch of questions from uh, messages as well. Spring. Uh, I think Bertrand was in on, in front of me. Poppy, if you wish to claim your spot, go ahead. Or if you wish to spring to go ahead. I can claim the spot very quickly. So, um, first of all, thank you for what you're doing and Slava uh, Ukraini. Uh, I have a very practical question that was asked to me today and I could not answer. So, um, person with medical training, emergency medical training, no combat experience, but uh, um, basic military training too. Is uh, she someone that uh, could potentially be useful and uh, could apply or not? Thank you. So strictly speaking, no, uh, not right now anyway, because she doesn't have combat experience and emergency medicine is very close to combat medicine, but they're still very different and combat medicine requires different skill sets and if she has not been in active combat to practice medicine while you're in a combat situation it's entirely different than uh than uh, emergency medicine in a potentially often much calmer environment um uh combat experience is required for everyone medics engineers um support staff um as of right now and we changed this criteria back in march and it has been applied since thank you very much that helps a lot Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Hi, uh, everyone. My question comes after a situation that I watched, listened in the case. Is there any requirement that people, after leaving the Legion, are obliged to keep some description, discretion policy? Is that if there exists, I do support it because I don't like to see people speak about things that are happening internally in the open space. Uh, Yes, so legionnaires do sign an NDA, it's a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, I am aware, as communications director of the legion, I am aware of what is happening and that many people who might have not even been in the legion, might have never signed a contract, might have never even met legionnaires as such, are out there spreading misinformation or or spreading their negative experiences um even though what they are saying i'm not saying that their experiences are not true however factually their information is incorrect i have asked personally several people to stop doing this uh people who know 